Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Formula One season is done and dusted and it's the time of year when we all start looking back and try and understand and unwrap the real stories of the 2019 season. I'm your host Ed Straw and joining me for the first of a two-part season review podcast first is uh, Karun Chandok. Now you have picked a tremendous venue for for this. Yes, my local pub, the Royal Standard, it's 900 years old and claims to be the oldest free house in England. So uh, yeah, welcome. I have to say, it's very, it's very pleasant. I'm quite pleased to see there is some weaponry around, some, some blades. So if things get a bit heated in our debate, particularly when we do the second part of our podcast about the top 10 drivers, we could, uh, if we need to settle some disputes, there's some chance. There's a, there's there's a, a picture place, of a man on a horse as well. That's always what you need, isn't it? That, that sec- second voice you've heard is, uh, is Stuart Codling, who's enjoying the surround. You're very pleased to, to discover the pup has a cat. Oh yes, um, I, I stroke the cat. Very fluffy. Might might have a slight case of the tag nuts, but um, very very fluffy. Quite a meow, and um, permitted me to stroke him or her before I vanished off to the facilities, and they then took their leave. Who knows where? A tag nuts a Christmas treat. Is it now? It's what fluffy cats get as well. I'm afraid. Well, that voice was my final guest, uh, Jonathan Noble, who has who has braved the elements to uh, to bike his way up here, which is quite impressive. The human icicle. Yeah, I'm a bit cold, a bit wet. I've got my. Luckily, there's a nice roaring fire here. Um, more able to light a fire here than Karun at his house, as we recall, twelve <laughs> months ago. Uh, so all my stuff's drying out. Karun does claim to have mastered the art of. Uh, Art of fire making after a consultation with a chimney sweeper. I, I did. I had a lesson from a chimney sweeper after Johnny basically made fun of me for the next six months about my poor fire making abilities. And rightly so. I think uh, you need to have more more than a year of good fire making to to eliminate that. Did you think kindling was uh, like something you did with an e reader? No, it, it was it was a whole story about preheating the chimney. But I've nailed it now. Absolutely on fire. You need to make sure you get the air in underneath, isn't it? That's the right. That's the key. <laughs> right. Should we, should we get on with it? Well, casting our mind back to the start of the season, this this was a year that went through lots of different phases. And back in in testing, we were all very confident, and I'd still say with good reason that Ferrari had the advantage. Ferrari thought they had the advantage. Mercedes thought they were going to have a slow start to the season, then really grow into it, and then. We got to Australia and suddenly there was Mercedes dominating a minute down the road from, from Ferrari. So, Karun, you and I were both very keen on saying Ferrari were ahead. So, as some have said, did we get it spectacularly wrong or is it just one of those things and things changed? I think things changed on the last day. I mean, we saw Mercedes go out and, you know, Lewis did some low field runs and, you know, we saw them get 
quite close to the, the ultimate lap time we saw from Ferrari. And that last day, the eighth day of testing, was the first clear sign we saw from Mercedes that that they've, they're you know there or thereabouts. Before that, they did look two, three tenths behind. And speaking now in hindsight to some of the some of the people involved in the team, they did admit that it took them to those last couple of days to unlock the setup that worked in the car. And I think where we perhaps got it wrong is the fact that they carried more fuel, even for those low fuel runs, than we suspected. Because when they got to Melbourne, I think Ferrari slightly underperformed at Melbourne, um, but equally Mercedes just blitzed it. Yeah, I think there's actually a narrative problem because what we didn't realise at the time was the first test, Mercedes just bought a car to check reliability, had a very basic error package, it wasn't quick. So when their times weren't good, everyone was going, oh my God, Mercedes in crisis, Ferrari fantastic. Second test, they bought the full aero package. It took them three days to kind of get on top of it, understand it. The W10 is quite a tricky car. Um, all season, they've been battling with it, trying to get these you know, very sensitive front wings to work. So when you look back at it now, those two weeks are fully understandable of a uh, non-representative car the first week, a car that was tricky to get right. They finally did it on the final day uh, of the test. But you know, when you're living it, Mercedes weren't going to put their hand up at that time and say, oh, no, 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 the first test, ignore that. So I think when you look back, it's fully explainable. But at the time, we weren't really sure what was going on. Yeah, I, I interviewed John Owen, the chief designer of Mercedes, a couple of weeks ago for um, the next issue of F1 Racing out uh, next week. And he said that they were actually quite amused to an extent when everyone were writing them off um, during the first test. Because, as he said, when they, when they, when they were assembling the, the W10 for that first test, he actually couldn't remember signing off the various bits that were on it because the the aero parts were so old and he he did admit that there was a there was a dialogue internally about well were we doing the right thing when they looked at the ferrari wing configuration but they kind of thought well we we can't change it now because that'll involve six months more work faffing around so we believe in what we're doing let's just stick to the plan and lo and behold they, they made it work but having said all that James Allison I interviewed him did say they did expect still to go to Australia and be behind but just less behind than it than it looked and then by mid-season they'd be there fighting back and then they'd, they'd dominate the end of the season and then it would be be an easy win so there's definitely a, a mixture of elements there Ferrari underperforming as well they did struggle massively in uh in, uh, in Australia and it's interesting isn't it because the whole first half of the season is just a story of Ferrari underachievement as well because this was a car that had weekends where it was capable of being quick and capable of winning but they always found a way to take themselves out of the equation. Ferrari had too many weekends where they didn't capitalise and, and actually the whole season you know you, you mentioned the first half but I look at Russia and Mexico you know these are all opportunities uh, that they gave away really. Um, I think also Red Bull really until Austria didn't didn't turn up to the party. The car by their own admission was difficult to drive, it was tricky for the driver the corner entry. Gasly's confidence took a massive knock with those sh- shunts early on in, in pre-season. Red Bull so. clearly struggled with the with the, with front, the front wing, wing change. regulation changes. It wasn't until they had a series of upgrades and the I races Aust- leading Austria up to and including Austria. That was the yeah. final bit of the package that fixed it. Yeah, that that from there on, you know, they were they were right in the hunt every every weekend, at least against Ferrari, not necessarily against Mercedes, especially on a Sunday. So, yeah, uh, Ferrari tripped over themselves a lot, didn't they? I mean, the number of points they gave away is, is crazy, really. And the other thing I understand in a championship fight, it's about momentum and where you're feeling. If Ferrari had, you know, if Charles Leclerc hadn't had that spark plug failure in Bahrain and won that race, Baku, they hadn't made the, you know, Leclerc's mistake and going on the wrong tyres in Q2, um, they could have won that one. You know, these wins at the time, you know, you win Bahrain, you win Baku, uh, you win Canada. Um, would have changed uh, the dynamic Austria of the, as well. Dynamic of the season. Austria would have been Germany winnable too. Yeah, so it would have changed the dynamic, and Mercedes would have been a bit more under pressure. But they're just like an open, open door. Here you go, Mercedes. Here's another win. To what extent do we think that they were distracted by having to manage the situation between the two drivers? Like Karun, you mentioned um, Russia. That was a race that they should have won. But there were all the shenanigans about team orders and oh, do we pit now? Do we pit later? Do you let him buy? All that sort of thing. And, and, and while they were focusing on Vettel's insubordination, Lewis just whistled that race out from under them. I mean, they start, tried to start doing it in Melbourne, didn't they? We heard on team radio conversations from the opening Grand Prix, and you're sort of going, "Oh, hang on, what, what's going on here?" And 
And then we got, you know, as the season started to unfold, in China was the same thing. They used Leclerc to try and hold up the Mercedes and, well, well, even, and things like even that. Even in Bahrain, they ordered Leclerc to stay behind Vettel exactly. for two laps. And then and he, he probably just, overtook him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I think they, they did seem to want to overcomplicate their own lives. Rather than opening their eyes and saying, hang on a second, Leclerc's right there. Seb's not comfortable with this car. It really took till the Singapore update, I think, for us to see the Sebastian of old. You know, it's, he needs a car with that rear stability on corner entry. And till till they introduced the new floor and front wing and stuff at Singapore, we never saw that. And uh, to, to me, it was only that first stint in Sochi where he got ahead of the start and went. And the quality lap in Japan was the first two times I, I saw, perhaps maybe the outlap of Singapore as well, where he jumped Leclerc. That's when we started to see the Seb of old, wasn't it? Till then, it, it just didn't look happy. Yeah, and I think after, I think post Monza, when Leclerc had taken a brilliant win, you know, tremendous pressure from Lewis. Um, Sebastian had the spin. It'd been a weekend of the team orders controversy in qualifying when he felt he'd been betrayed by Charles not giving him the slipstream. It was a real deep soul searching moment for Seb. Everyone was saying, "Oh, he's out. He's finished. Career's over." And I think he dug deep, and it, I think it kind of. He knew it was it was now or never to get things back on track. Singapore upgrade came at the right time. Suddenly, the balance of the car was exactly what he wanted, and he was away. And I think that the feistiness we saw, especially in Russia, because um, it was almost ridiculous to tell him to try and let Charles pass at a pace when Lewis is in yeah. is in shooting well, range. Well, he was right, wasn't it? I mean, he, when he said, "Hang on, let's just go now and break away," he was absolutely right. What what they should have done is is gone till after the pit stops, once you're clear of any safety car race, and then swap it in the last 10 laps, like Ferrari used to with Michael and Barrichello, for example. They managed the whole thing with a lack of confidence, is what I would say. They, it wasn't they didn't intervene, because they often did, but they intervened sometimes a little bit too slowly. I think quite often they hoped the situation would sort itself out without them having to do it. And I, I just feel that, A, they didn't recognise the fact that for a big part of the season, the Clerk was a stronger driver, but they also just didn't play their hand properly. Then when they tried to be ultra-decisive, they did it at the wrong time. It was just just mishandled. But actually, to come back to your question, Codders, I don't think that was the fundamental root of their problem. It, it was a complication, but I think it's just one symptom of a team that's just not at Mercedes standard in terms of all-round ability, knowing how to win championships, being comfortable in their, their proven ways of doing things. And it's a you know, new, new dynamic for the team to deal with, new team principal in charge, total different atmosphere, um, different way of operating from Arriva Bene. Um, two new drivers, and you've got a driver like Charles who comes into the season, you know, not fully confident in himself. You know, qualifying was still a bit lacking, but I mean the scale of his progress over the season was just phenomenal. You find a weakness, address it, bang, next race, done all the time. Improve this, this is a weakness, bang, it's done. Uh, and I think the best example was, you know, him racing against Max Verstappen in Austria. You know, he was really, really annoyed that um, Max had barged past him and didn't get a penalty. So he understood, right, this is the way we're racing. You know, Silverstone, we had that tremendous battle with Max. And that's the story of, I think, Ferrari trying to manage, you know, this, you know, ball of sensation that was Charles Leclerc as he came forward and, you know, the phenomenal run of pole positions. And I think if you actually break it down, they should have gone into Abu Dhabi still in contention. You know, when when you look at all of the errors, which um, I, was, I was looking at last week, you know, engine problems in Bahrain, the shunts in Baku qualifying you mentioned, Monaco, he made an error in Q1, then he crashed in Germany, then you got the strategy in Austria where they didn't think that Max would be a threat after he dropped back on lap one and they woke up too China late. As well. Strategy in China. Um, Mexico, the two-stop, because they thought Albon was a threat for victory when clearly he wasn't going to be. You know, there are all these things when you add them all together and, and also sort of misunderstanding the undercut in Singapore, really. You know, they cost Leclerc the victory there. I at least vaguely understand the Singapore one because that was the best way to preserve the one-two. So I, I kind of get that one. Yeah. Because Vettel would have been undercut. But I think, uh, but but the point is, it comes. W- what I'm trying to say is, to John's point earlier, they mis misjudged that actually Leclerc was their number one. Really, well, in that, many ways. That, they so didn't. You, they didn't know what they were doing. It was an accident. Still, yeah, yeah, whether it was right saying. or so not. If you, if you actually were in a championship fight and you want to back that horse, he was the one who was going to go to. Abu Dhabi, you know, with a chance at least, or for or an outside chance, even if Mercedes had double DNF or whatever. So they never really 
backed their horse in the way that they should have done. You should always back the quicker driver, I think, and Leclerc over the balance of the season. Was the, the only the the only thing we should say about Ferrari is although a lot of these race some of these races where they were strong and underachieved in qualifying, for example, they did have a general problem throughout the year in the fact the car was strong in qualifying trim. Charles Leclerc had more pole positions than anyone, but it was always weaker in in race trim, or generally was anyway. And obviously, this brings us to the whole engine question mark. Where do we where do we get to this in in the end? Rival teams are convinced they were doing something they shouldn't have been, and that changed. And we did see performance profile change slightly in the in the late races. There's a little bit of post hoc to that, though, isn't there? It's very easy to say, "Well, something changed, and then something else happened." There must be a link. It, it could be related. It might not be. I think the you know team, it's all very easy for teams to be convinced and uh, chat in the paddock and say, "Oh, they're cheating. This is wrong," and you know, rolling out GPS graphs and saying this doesn't make any sense. But you know, if they're so convinced, put a protest in go to the FIA so at no point was you know Ferrari there were checks on the um, power unit over the course of the season uh, if rivals were so convinced it was illegal so convinced it was cheating put the process in we should also say that some rivals were convinced on one methodology for what they were doing and then they were convinced by another one later so you know things change it's, it's difficult there's backing some, a different horse exactly there's some circumstantial evidence but nothing decisive that's that's the difficult difficult thing to deal with and i think that's why they couldn't protest it because they what do you protest what, yeah, if you, you don't know protest, what they're doing you can't make a vague protest of, you know based on speed so yeah look i think that that's a subject that uh, ultimately only the fia can answer and they sort of have by not excluding ferrari at any point so i think you you just have to accept it for it is what it is and they Clearly, there was a difference, though, in the way the cars performed on a Saturday and a Sunday. I think the Mercedes had more downforce. It was a draggier car, no question about it, but it had more downforce. We saw even in that battle against Gasly, you know, it was just, he got out-dragged. It was, it's, of course, power helps the first bit, but once you get to fifth gear onwards, drag plays a bigger part. And the Mercedes was a draggier car, as we saw in Interlagos. So, um, but the plus side of that is it manages the tires fantastically. Um, you know, I, from from my little experience of driving the car earlier this year. I wonder how long it would take you to mention that. Well, <laughs> yeah. It's highlight of the year. But they, they, that's the, the way that the downforce works, the way the car works, they manage the rear tyres so well. The, and that's why on a Sunday, they could allow Ferrari to, to go, even in the first few laps, and then they just chip away, chip away, chip away, like in Mexico. And when it comes around the pit stops, they're there. When you've got a driver like Lewis Hamilton, who is very good at executing a race strategy, he won from off-pole, uh, for, well, from not-off-pole position, eight times this season, which is a record, admittedly, with a huge number of races compared to the past. So that, that says something. It was a, so you had this quite interesting difference, in that you, which we don't often see this these days, where you had a car that had a clear qualifying advantage, but was generally not as strong in the race. So they could get track position, but it was quite hard to keep it, versus a car that struggled to get track position from the start, but had the pace on the race to get it, which... It's a shame Ferrari weren't better because that would have been a fascinating... Imagine that as the whole championship fight. That would have been absolutely brilliant. But Ferrari let us down by just not being good enough. I think, the very interestingly, Andy Cowell from Mercedes-Benz High Performance Powertrains said that there are things you can do with the engine architecture that will enable you to access more power in qualifying, but that will compromise you over the course of races in terms of the the several races that the engine has to last in terms of its durability and its ability to sustain peak power. So Mercedes haven't gone down that route. So maybe Ferrari has made a a conscious decision to try and prioritise peak power and that involves compromises elsewhere. Which is valid if it had actually converted more times. It should have, I mean, we listed all the races it could have won. Three races was a poor, wins was a poor return. You know, you could have said maybe half a dozen would have been all right, but it could have it could have won eight nine. I mean, they really, if Red Bull had two drivers scoring points, they would have finished second in the constructors' championship ahead of Ferrari, despite Ferrari having a quicker car. And to me, that just shows Red Bull's a better operating race team, isn't it? On a Sunday, you'd still say it's probably the best, but it is, it is a frustrating team, though Red Bull, because throughout the hybrid era, they've they've not underachieved, but they've struggled. But again, this year, again, a slow start coming on strong. And we've had this the last few years. We said, oh, Red Bull finished strong. Next year, are they going to be there? Then there's this bit of a reset. They have, oh, we haven't quite got this right. I've got, oh, right, bang, we're there now. 
And while it was a, it was great, the Red Bull was often in there. Brilliant to see Honda getting a few wins. You know, that's a great story for F1, and F1 really needed that to to happen. But but Red Bull continues to be a little bit frustrating because this was never going to be a championship bid year, the first year with the works team running Honda. But you just want to see the hints that they can be there from the start and really fight for it because, as you say, operationally, they're, they're as good as anyone, maybe even better. And to be fair to Honda, it almost felt like Red Bull let the side down, actually, this time, rather than, than Honda. You know, in a, If you look at the... the reasons for their lack of performance early on it was a Red Bull thing well it was a fascinating season because it's the first time that Red Bull haven't just been able to say oh it's the engine's fault the engine's let us down so it was the first year they've had to admit that they were slow to get going the front wing change hurted them the car was difficult to drive um you know even Max was finding it a struggle early on um yeah for a team that you know widely renowned for years is that this is the best chassis and if they had a proper engine they'd be gunning for every championship but it didn't really happen this year, but I mean, the second half of the year, once once they hit their stride, you know, imagine the F1 season has started around Austria time, it would have been a phenomenal championship. You almost feel sorry for Gasly, don't you? Because for much of his stint with that team, he had a car that was difficult. And, you know, we heard all sorts of stories about how he was struggling with it, wanting the seat changed and also the pedals changed, all things like that. He was just kind of reaching and flailing for solutions and, and the problem was with the car, not the way he was sitting in it. Although I think his uh, his attitude did wind Red Bull up quite a bit. I think that they could have lived with the performance, but I think he he didn't cover himself with glory in, in that regard. Yeah, I mean, you go into spiral, don't you? But it's interesting you say that because when you look at Gasly versus Max, on average, he was 0.417 down if you remove race with penalty stuff. And actually, Albon was 0.433 off, so he's further away. But I think in the early part, the problem for Gasly was he, he would often end up qualifying behind some of the midfield cars. Then he'd spend the first stint in the midfield, couldn't really make progress. And and then it just it just spiraled into looking pretty poor that was Alpin's strength because he never finished behind the midfields except at Interlagos when he was booted into the but spin but I think the car got better no that, that's true that, so that, it, was, that, it was easier that skewed the picture a little but bit but he did manage to make passing even if they were a bit leery sometimes that was something Gasly tended to struggle to do remember Austria springs to mind he spent ages bottled up behind Raikkonen didn't he where he should have been able to dispatch him you know I like Gasly I, I think he's very quick and he showed with Toro Rosso you know we're going to talk about in the next podcast the top 10 drivers if if it was just the second half of the season I think Gazi would probably be in there because he was really good but I think perhaps Red Bull showed a certain amount of his limitations difficult circumstances but um, Albon did better although yep. not as much better as maybe people think I think I'd agree with that well I think that one of the key key frustrations for Red Bull um, which was exposed in Hungary particularly is Gazi was so far back it allowed Mercedes the strategy option to go for the undercut. If, if the second Red Bull car had been there, uh, he wouldn't have been able to do that and Max would have won the race. So I think they, were, they were seeing these frustrations on a Sunday afternoon where you need the second car to at least be a, a threat. And Albon on Sundays was, you know, fantastic. The charge from the back at Spa, you know, Brazil would have been, you know, amazing apart from that incident with Lewis. Great pass on um, uh, Leclerc, wasn't it? He passed. It's one of the Ferraris. I forget. He pulled a great move around the outside into, into turn one. And um, China yeah, just, good recovery pro- as well. Yeah, just, just after a huge the oh, yeah, yeah. three. Yeah, <laughs> he did. Just he did progress. crash a lot, but he recovered well. So it's just Sundays is more reliable. And I think he had, he admitted, and the team know that qualifying is the problem. Um, we got to remember it's his first season in Formula One. You know, twelve months ago, Charles Leclerc said, "I can't put qualifying laps together." He's really, really struggling for it, trying to understand how to hit this peak performance and managing everything. And you know, second season F one, more pole positions than anyone. So. I think it's just progress. You've got to just remember that 12 months ago, Alex Albon hadn't driven a lap in a Formula 1 car. Yeah, well, last uh, last year in July, he signed he signed himself to a, an Edam's Nissan uh, Formula E deal and basically had, had accepted Formula 1 wasn't going to happen for him. So it's been a remarkable turnaround. I, I think it's, it's the right thing for Red Bull to have done to give him another season. I think he, he, if you look at the choices they had around, he's, he's the best of the, the other three. No, very, very much so. But I think the Honda progress is is positive as well. That they they made big steps with the engine through the year. We saw it's a it's a strong package, and it's it, it's it's right up there really now in terms of certainly a race engine. And you wouldn't say it's really giving away anything to Mercedes or or to, to Renault as it stands, even if the Ferrari's got that slightly better Friday performance sometimes. Yeah, and and you know they had decent reliability on the main team. I don't think they had any reliability issue 
on a Sunday on the on the works team. Admittedly, Toro Rosso went through seven power units in each car, I think, with penalties across the year. So maybe a bit of testing going on on that side. But here's a question to you guys. How much do you think Christian and Helmut are regretting not having signs still in the program? Because that suddenly Max and Carlos this year would have looked pretty handy, wouldn't it? Definitely. And I suppose the, the thing is you, you, you can always look back at a decision in hindsight and say that was a bad decision. So maybe we should, we should dial back to the time when they let science go and look at the circumstances there and say maybe it was the right thing to do at the time. Maybe they were well served for drivers at that point. But certainly looking back now, hindsight does reveal that to have been not the right thing to do. And the motivation for letting him go was more political and the way in which he kind of engineered the, the move to Renault. I think there was a bit of a a bit of animosity that created that led to it, which I think maybe they come to regret, shall we say. But yeah, it would have would have made a, a huge a, a huge difference. Uh, so I think one of the facts about this season we should sort of talk about is everyone got a little bit bored early on, eight consecutive Mercedes wins. Everything Mercedes did was right. But actually, this season has been pretty good. It's been very good, in fact. I mean, even in that early stage of the season, if you look, for, say, from the run from Monaco on, which was, okay, it's Monaco. It's never Apart be- from France. Yeah, yeah, exactly. France was was Nadir, but you look Monaco, Canada, obviously great controversy there with the stewarding decisions. Silverstone was good, you know. It was mostly very, very good. Probably more good, interesting, storied races than we've seen for many a season. I would say. Yeah, I wrote, wrote a column saying this was the best worst season in Formula One because championship wise, it was you know we knew pretty much from the Spanish Grand Prix this it was going one way. Um, you know, Bottas had a strong start, but. Lewis just got into that charge and was gone. It didn't seem to be enough of a way back in for Valtteri. So you pretty resigned fairly early on that this was a, a one-man championship. But individual race-wise, you know, it was fascinating. And I don't think that the lack of a championship battle took away any of the spectacle. The races were great. You didn't know if it was going to be a Red Bull weekend, a Ferrari weekend, a Mercedes weekend. Who was going to come out on top? Who was going to take pole position? So individually, great. If we deleted the first eight races and then had the championship start from there... Would have been amazing. Yeah, I, I would go as far as to say in the V6 hybrid era, it's the best season of individual racing we've had. Uh, you know, not the best championship battle, of course, but uh, I, I agree with John. I think the, the individual races have been have been brilliant. Um, mentioning Canada earlier, we should also mention the, the 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 shift in stewarding decisions, which initially seemed quite positive, then seemed to get a bit muddled as, as the as the season season went on. So these whole controversies. With the stewarding, where, where do we stand on on that? There is a little bit too much reaction going on in that stewards would get criticised, so they would say, okay, well, we'll shift our stance next time. So it went from being a little bit too heavily involved in the outcome of the race to, okay, right, we'll let them race, and then something would happen, and it's, okay, well, we're going to be more heavy-handed again. Uh, it just, I think you just can't please all the people all the time. Just stick to one policy. The only way you can fix it is by having the same panel of stewards at every race. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm friends. You'd be good at that. Well, I think you should. <laughs> I'm all, friends with endorse, yeah. you know various of the stewards, including the driver stewards. And you know, I remember talking about the um, Leclerc and Max thing in in Austria. With there was a group of us, four or five of us, talking about it, and everyone had a different opinion. You know, some saying they would penalize, some saying they wouldn't. And that itself shows where the inconsistencies perhaps come. But until you're never going to get anyone to volunteer. You know, all of us around this table and in the paddock get paid to do a job to go to the races, 21 races a year or whatever. They don't. And until and unless you get a professionally paid group of people, you won't get that consistency. It's opinion. So It is amazing in, in, a, in a high-level professional sport to have non-professional referees effectively most other yeah. top sports not all of them but most of them the ones that have got the, the top level that have got the real money behind them have gone that way and like you say that would that would create consistency because the thing is people talk about you can have written rules but no wording can cover every single eventuality and all exactly all incidents are very fractionally different I and mean, people have an annoying tendency to look at the austria like thing a, like was a, a gray area exactly as well, yeah and, and i and I think if you've got a panel of stewards, you know, even if it's a small pool of stewards of six, seven, eight, so at least got a tiny bit of flexibility, they'll have all that kind of case law in their in their heads, for want of a better word, and it and it would create greater consistency because they know what they've done before and they'd understand what they've done before. I think the downside of having one permanent steward or a permanent crew is then bias comes into it. You know, if a drive if a steward's 
or driver feels is the steward's got it in for him, then all, all decisions are going against him. I think then True. you get into a much worse situation. Whereas if they use, you know, the, the consistency of decisions, they've got precedent of where things have done and, you know, it needs an interpretation. You know, you need different referees in football. You know, some referees are stricter, some are more liberal. Um, and at the end of the day, we've got a permanent race director whose you know job it is to should be to advise and you know let people know where the where the lines are and where they're not. But the thing with Formula One, any regulation you put down, instantly you know circumstance always pulls something into a, a grey area or it needs an interpretation. And the second you've got interpretation, half the people are unhappy and half the people are happy. You'll think you'll never never get away from, from that. There's well, a lot to be said about the trick. football analogy because. In football, the, the referee is, a, is an irritation and an impediment to progress a lot of the time. That The game can flow without the ref. You can, not at an international level or, or a club level, of course, you can, play, you can play football without a ref, whereas you, can, you can't play rugby without a referee. And, and in football, the referee is someone that you actually don't really want to be getting involved in the action. The main the main challenge is just drivers want to know exactly where the limit is, what's acceptable, what's what's not. I don't have a big problem with the with the Austrian interpretation. I think there's a live by the sword, die by the sword element. So when you're on the outside, yep, I can understand that. I think you take that as a as a risk. I like the fact that things like say later on, like the Leclerc penalty at Suzuka, I kind of thought was sensible because that was an outright mistake from him that that caused problems for Verstappen. Things like Ricardo on Magnussen at Interlagos, like slightly puzzled me i didn't think that was entirely necessary but he did have a bit of a lunge exactly but exactly but it's it, it's it's one of those things that where do you draw the line between something small small mistake I was, that there is always a gray area and there's always going to be a line to cross over but i didn't have a massive in general i'd prefer them to be less interventionist as they were in the second two thirds of the season than more interventionist the biggest um question mark i suppose that people raised was the Monza one, wasn't it? Lewis and Leclerc into the second chicane at Monza that everyone, you know, Mercedes and people were jumping up and down thinking Leclerc should have been penalised. And uh, But to me, that was also racing. You know, Lewis put himself in that position trying to go around the outside of the at the chicane in a battle for the lead against a Ferrari driver at Monza. You're, you're putting yourself at a little bit of a risk there. And to me, that was on the edge, and they were right to let that go. One of the other problems is is precedent, isn't it? Because, you know, teams and drivers and, and people look at an incident and go, well, three years ago, this happened in Barcelona, and so-and-so got penalized. I think in some ways, it needs a winter where Michael Massey has all the team managers, all the drivers in a room in preseason testing and says, right, we're tearing up the precedent. This is now what the guideline is going forward this is how we're going to rule on things show them some videos of incidents and go this is what happened this is my view on it so you guys have a clear idea of what's what's acceptable and what's not going forward and and let's have a clean slate there's a lot to be said for that um in the same way that having just said that rugby's less relevant to an analogy than football but in the recent rugby world cup there was a framework introduced with the what sort of penalty that would apply in the case of a high tackle and it would measure intent did the player go in low did it slide up high inadvertently because the other player came down and uh, and and the referee and the assistant referee would then have a dialogue about uh, where that fitted in the framework before they would apply the penalty. And, and maybe, like you say, that is something that should be applied here where the there are clear gu- guidelines about intent and whether things happen inadvertently or and not. The big, the big problem is there's always a point, no matter what your rules are, where there's a line, isn't there? And something that's like just over the line one way or the other will always be very, very close in nature to a similar incident as the other side. And that's unavoidable because there has to be it has to be aligned, doesn't it? So we do have to accept, I think, like John says, you're not going to please everyone. And there will, there will be restrictions. However, I can see I can see the argument for having a permanent group, at least. Although there is, there's a big permanent group, effectively, now. But it's, nev- it's never going to be perfect, because it's very easy to hate the referee, isn't it? Now, we should maybe talk a little bit about the midfield, uh, which was... Uh, as ever, pretty pretty dramatic. We saw well six of the of the seven. We, we can't really call Williams a midfield team, um, but the six midfield teams uh, all had their moments uh, over, over the year. But McLaren was the was the big story, wasn't it? I didn't expect them to bounce back so well this year. 
but they did remarkably well. They showed they've understood their problems. They've learned from them. And a lot of that was done last year before even the, the current technical director, James Key and Andreas Seidel, the new team principal came in. So overall, hugely encouraging for, for McLaren. They had a car that was consistently good, developed well, often the class in the midfield. Very intelligently, James Key and Andreas Seidel have, have not taken credit for that because uh, they're following the old Adrian Newey maxim of, of not taking the credit for all the great stuff because um, you then have to take it for the bad stuff as well. But they, they, they're also admittedly, you know, arrived there and locked into this season. It's next year's car that's really going to be the first first effects, but, uh, particularly for James because Andreas isn't actually drawing any of the bits. But Well, they've set the sights high. They talk, cause there's talk about having a new concept and what, what that is is a few little areas of the car where they feel they could unlock much more potential by taking a different approach, and they need to do that to try and understand the underlying science that they need to apply for for twenty one. So there's big there's big ambitions there, and it seems to be sensibly done and yeah. well well intended. For example, we know we know James Key's very good. Andreas Seidel just understands how to run a racing he, team as he's, well. He's uh, he's a breath of fresh air. I I only got to know him a little bit this year, but I'd heard from people who worked with him at Porsche and at Williams before during the BMW era that all rated him very highly. And, uh, you know, I've had the opportunity to spend a bit of time with him away from the track and stuff. And you, you, you speak with him and you go, he gets it. Like, he, he is on the ball. He's switched on. He's deals with things in a very balanced way. You know, he needs to keep people's motivation up so therefore celebrate a podium like in Brazil. But at the same time, he goes, well, McLaren, we shouldn't be getting overexcited about a podium, but you have to balance it out because... There are some people who only joined us in the last five years and haven't had a victory. So you gotta, you gotta keep that whole thing going. But, you know, on the whole, the midfield, you know, I look at Racing Point this year, by my calculations, had the ninth fastest car. And they're more or less where they were last year as a sixth fastest car, which just shows that the whole midfield has now bunched up. It's about point, much closer point to, to the top team. It's about point seven percent covering them, and they all moved a bit closer to the front, wasn't it? Yeah. For the exactly. benefits of the listeners, Karun has produced an iPad with uh, a, a chart. Well, yes, yeah. because his Kindle's gone in the fire. But <laughs> <laughs> hey. well, yeah, no, I think you know McLaren, the biggest gainers across the season, no question about it. But when you look at the rest of the midfield, they're all, uh, you know. As you say, Ed, within 0.6 percent, which which reflected, and ultimately it was down to consistency. Consistency, wasn't it? Renault wasn't consistent enough. I think the the one fact you, you can't ignore with McLaren moving up to the fourth quickest team is that the teams that were there last year, Haas and Renault, both fell back this season. So these things always go in ebbs and flows. Um, you know, Haas had a mighty quick car in Australia. Um, they were pretty confident they were best of the rest. It was all looking strong, great testing, and then suddenly. Um, their lack of downforce was highlighted in Bahrain. They went the wrong direction thinking it was a tyre problem. Um, it took them until kind of Silverstone to fully understand where they were in their season, never really recovered. But, well, and that, Ren- but, then had they, the, but then they got P5 in Austria. You and know what I mean? both the, cars in Q3 in yeah. Brazil. So I, the, Haas, the Haas one is like a whole other podcast on its own. The, the, I mean, str- still have no answer. the strange thing with Haas, I mean, basically... You speak to the uh, that interview that Comanche, their chief engineer, and he explained it all. He's always very interesting and explaining in great depth. And he said, "Well, basically, low temperatures we struggled." And they also had a car, a strong front end, but once you were in, in lower speed, medium and lower speed corners, the rear downforce wasn't there. But in fast corners, it worked pretty well. But then high temperatures, they really struggled. But yeah, Austria did did okay. You know, all all these things. So they were really all over all over the map. But I think the one other interesting thing is there. We did see with the, the design trends, obviously you had the, the kind of loaded outboard front wing versus unloaded. And by and large, in the midfield teams, the ones who went unloaded tended to do better because that seems to be a concept that's its overall percentage is maybe slightly lesser, but it's really complicated to make the, the loaded one work. You can control the wheel weight. Mercedes and Red Bull did it, but is it coincidence Haas, Williams, Renault all went that way and struggled with it, the teams that did a bit better? It's never one thing, but for example, Renault went loaded. They just struggled to to make it work. They they didn't get anything out of the barge board upgrades as they tried to bring them in through the season. So they they just got the, the felt they got the the concept wrong. There's always different problems that contribute to it, but I think that maybe tells you something about the capability of the midfield teams in terms of the research and development, the underlying science that the big teams have already kind of banked in that you take something with greater overall potential, but it's much harder to get right. I think year in, year out, and certainly in the last five years, the 
midfield is all about consistency. You know, you look at, as we mentioned, Haas, big peaks and troughs, Renault up and down, even Alpha, suddenly, you know, they have two cars in Brazil, which are right there, and Abu Dhabi, they're slower than they were in 2018. And, you know, there's these ups and downs, same with Toro Rosso. And ultimately, Although Toro Rosso were more consistent than previously. I was going to say, ultimately, McLaren were the most consistent, and I think that's why they won the midfield battle. Toro Rosso seemed more consistent than they have in the past. And obviously, they had those two highs of the podiums, um, slightly, you know, fortunate there. But, and that, that overall has helped them. But yeah, McLaren, at the start of the season, it wasn't the fourth quickest car. Uh, you know, struggling for qualifying pace, but Sunday's strategy was well executed. Drivers were doing well, and they they kept bagging the points. And it was their rivals who were had quicker cars at that point and just couldn't couldn't get it together. So it was the consistency of point scoring in the first half without the the quick car they needed, and second half when that the pace picked up, they were there delivering as well. And it wasn't as even as if they were perfect. It did have reliability problems and pit stop blunders. So it wasn't as if McLaren was completely impregnable, but they did by and large do the do the best job. Science had those reliability problems at the beginning of the year as well, didn't he? I mean, equally, Norris had loads of bad luck as well. Yeah. E- equally, you could look at Toro Rosso and say that, like Corinne says, the Kvyat podium in Germany was was an aberration because it was it was a strategic gamble and it was just sort of throwing something at the wall to see if it stuck. It wasn't it wasn't actually a great decision even at the time. It's only in hindsight we view it as being. A, a but Al- Albon was quick that weekend. He would have been he would have been there or thereabouts anyway. So what what I mean is they. They had consistently a, a better season, or sorry, in terms of consistency, I should say, than than they've had in the past. Um, should we talk about Renault because that's a yeah. it should be a big team, and they haven't they haven't had a great year. I, I well, this, this 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 was a team that's objective was to finish a better fourth this year and try and strike out into that no man's land between the top three and the rest. It was a team that, on its day, was capable of. Strong results, places like Monza and uh, and Montreal, low downforce tracks, crucially. But other days was languishing in the in the teens and more and hirings and firings points. in the background. Which yeah, Nick Chester, the technical director, is gone. Isn't necessarily the right way to go because you, you end up starting, if not from zero, but you, you you have to start rebuilding your culture, don't you? When you make these hirings and firings. But the hirings they've done are good, though. I think Pat, I think Pat Fry and Dirk de Beer are, are two very very good logical hirings for them. So well, Pat Fry had a hand in McLaren as well, of course. Exactly, that's what I'm saying. And and you look at, you forget what the um, the recent stint Dirk de Beer had at Williams, but prior to that, you know, he did a good job at Ferrari. I think he did a good job at Enstone before that as well. So he, you know, he's he's got a good reputation. But Renault is under a lot of pressure, isn't it, John? They they've got to, they're at the point where they need to really deliver, and they needed not to regress. Yeah, they were fractionally closer to the front. But in terms of the midfield battle, slipping to fifth and only being six points ahead of Toro Rosso, notwithstanding the fact that was distorted by the two podiums. But that's that's a bad season by any measure, isn't it? Yeah, and it's against, against the backdrop of being a, a car manufacturer and you know the car industry is going through quite a challenging time. The the move to electrics putting their finances under pressure. There's need to you know cut cut budgets and be more economical with with the business. And you know Renault knows it's investing a lot in Formula One. Cyril's well aware that. You know, as a background, there's been the, the upheaval inside the Renault car company. The Formula One project will be analysed and work out if they continue. And he's under pressure to, you know, deliver the promises of podiums and wins the next two, three years. So, you know, there is a, a big pressure there mounting. And, um, you know, he admitted this year was his most difficult he's had in Formula One. You know, there were some great moments, but, you know, the heartbreak in Bahrain when both cars retired within seconds of each other. Um you know, the drama of Suzuka with the, the protest and then disqualification for the, the brake balance adjuster. Um, you know, there's all big moments that, you know, if you're a, a Renault board member, these aren't the, the things you want to see. The, the, the bad days were really, really exposed. And overall, being beaten by your customer team as well. I mean, you know, and comprehensively as well. They weren't close to McLaren when you look at the final point standing. Yeah. But then again, that shows the strength of the engine. So I think on, on one thing, the engine has... Um, step forward there's, yes there's been reliability problems and they're still working on it but I think their qualifying mode was a bit, bit better this year they're kind of nudging onto the the back end of well I think Ferrari is still ahead wherever they wherever their real Ferrari's real performance is whether it's Monza Monza spec or whether it's Abu Dhabi Austin spec we don't really know but I think the Renault's not that far away now the investment's there um, 
and they can push forward. So I don't think that being beaten by McLaren is such a disaster because it shows does at least show the strength of the engine. I think, as Ed alluded earlier, they have had real problems with the car concept because most Grand Prix you've seen them, a new barge board pretty much every time or very, very frequently, a lot of running with aero rakes behind the front wheel to try and work out what's going on. So it, it just does appear that they've been struggling to contain the, the, the wheel wake from the front, and, and that's been, been the major impediment. I spoke to Martin Bukowski about it, and he said that, Basically, once you're running the concept, you can't. It's not you can't just change the front wing and it all works. You've got to basically do a whole new car, really. And they just had to work with what they've got. So I expect we can see a change next year from from Renault. But some teams do end up with just problems baked in that you can't you can't necessarily eliminate. Maybe if you're a big team, you can because again you have the resource. So this is where the the haves and the haves not. So they're calling Renault have not is probably a little bit unrealistic given how much they've expanded. But they have, they have problems because these these cars are so complicated and it takes so long to to make progress when you put it all on an update as Renault did in France. You know, they convinced the engine made the step forward. They believed the French Grand Prix update would lift them forward. It didn't work. Uh, and then you're trapped in a scenario of suddenly it's July time, uh, summer break's coming up. They'd committed to shutting down their wind tunnel for an upgrade. Um, so suddenly you're then into not going to do anything much until August, September time. And by then, far too late. So I think that there's often a lag of where a, when a team hits trouble, can take months and months and months to catch up. And that smacked of looking for a magic bullet solution, didn't it? The whole, oh, great, we've got a big update coming. We're going to t- make a big leap. And no one makes a big leap in Formula One anymore, do I th- they? I think Renault needs a dose of the, the McLaren humility that's that's played a part in McLaren's revival, shall we say, and just sort of really buckle down and think, actually, this is quite difficult and we need to really, really get these things right. Because they've got all the potential there. They've got good people. They've got good resource facilities. Good they drivers. Expanded. Good driver, so everything there, $25 million a year worth of uh, Daniel Ricciardo. He did drive very well once he did readjusted to life in the in the midfield. So I don't think we should take this year as confirmation the Renault project is a failure. I think that would be desperately premature, and it could just be a bump in the road, and it can, as is often the case, the lessons that are learned in the, the bad seasons are the ones that make things work for the, for the good season. Mercedes didn't exactly hit the ground running in Formula 1 in its early years and had to go through some tough years. But going back to the, the upgrade thing that Stuart mentioned, I think one of the key things of these cars is the, the complications of the front wing and trying to manage the flow. And I think the upgrades these days aren't about adding, you know, three temps of performance and X number of points of downforce. I think it's about unlocking potential in the car. And we saw it happen twice this year, the, the Red Bull upgrade in Austria and the Ferrari upgrade in Singapore. It wasn't about suddenly, you know, massive transformation in delivering tons more downforce it was about unlocking the balance of the car and making the car more usable and from that the performance came so that was the issue in france when this Renault upgrade came and it didn't work and the balance wasn't sorted and they were still struggling with the front end but i think then it was kind of hard to work out well how do we how do we address this now you'd often see them carry a dozen front wings to a race with all slightly different flaps and slightly different way they'd been made in terms of the weight and the flexing and uh, flexibility, I should say, of the main plane and things like that. So, you know, there's clearly a lot of experimentation going on, but overall it didn't really drag them up the order enough. And uh, to me, next year, they've they've got to get themselves back into fourth place. You know, if they're, if they're on their roadmap that they declared years ago and... Ed, I'll give you the point that maybe it is a bump in that road, but they can't be finishing behind their customer team. They, as a no. big manufacturer team, they need to be finishing ahead of them. Yeah, Another they, thing, they, have to, they have to respond. Uh, sorry, sorry to jump in, Ed. Another thing that struck me about Renault was that Team Enstone was always an organisation that you knew run a very, very sharp race operation. They made great calls from the pits. They were quite audacious at times. Generally, stuff went their way. Just this past couple of years, they've seen slack. There have been races where you just really couldn't understand their strategy Some in terms of when they extraordinary strategies where drivers were left out on pointless long runs. Every now and again, it worked. But if you do that, you've got to do it because you think it can work. Not, I mean, I guess you're sometimes hoping for it to fluke a safety car, but you can't, you can't build a season on that. Yeah, I mean, there were races, wasn't it, where they left Daniel out for really, really long stints on old tyres where he's sort of three, four seconds off the pace and you're going you are just hanging off a safety car here. Um, and yeah, as you say, sometimes it worked out, but for the most part, you that, that's that's a team trying to sneak in the odd extra points with a bit of luck. It's not a team who's meritocratically trying to, to hit 
you know, P5, P6. That's part of the legacy of the, the, the fact that midfield battle is so tight. If you're in the you know front of that pack, then you can run your strategy and um, dictate how that race goes. If you're, you know, trapped in the middle of it, trying to trying to come through, uh, it's much, much harder to try and do something clever. So that, that then f- pushes you to say, well, let's go and do something totally different and hopefully it can come off. We did see the, the kind of inverse of this. Look at Racing Point. You say, Corey, ninth, ninth fastest car on average. It did come on stronger in the second half of the season, but I think Perez scored points in all but one race in the back end of the year. I think he was a top-scoring midfield driver in, in, in that period. So just by having good racing now, playing the strategy properly, you can do well. Renault did have a fundamentally quicker car than Racing Point. He didn't use it well. Racing Point probably overachieved in terms of the points they did score because of the way they executed the races. And there's no doubt the Renault drivers can do that particularly Daniel Ricciardo, but, ra- but Racing Point were much better equipped as a team to do that. It's quite rare that you look uh, at the Racing Point performance over a Grand Prix and think that they've actually left points on the table. Usually they come away with, with the maximum of what they could get. With one of the cars. Well, yes, but let's not talk about him. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, uh, Lance Stroll's a funny case because I don't think he's without ability. He, he, he seems to be have a complete mental block in qualifying. Makes lots of little errors over qualifying laps, and until he cracks that, he's going to struggle. But equally, you know, we talk about his great first laps. Perez has very good first laps as well. So I don't, I don't really see what Stroll's offering to the team when you consider he got a disproportionate amount of his points from uh, from Germany. So uh, frustrating. For the benefit of the listeners, Karun has found another chart. He's not smashed his iPad into the into his uh, into his cup of tea as yet. So that's well, good. I mean, I was just looking at it across the season. It's two tenths the average gap between Perez and, and Stroll, but the score is seventeen two. If you take away races with penalties and issues and things like that, you know that's a very one sided score. But that two tenths in that midfield battle was often the difference between being on the cusp of getting the points or qualifying P eleven choice of tire. Then Perez is off getting points, and Lance is is out in, in Q1, and and that's all it took. And so he's not he's not looking, as you say, Ed, he's not looking to reinvent the wheel. He just needs to stop making these little errors and just piece it together. Um, he just and, loves and hitting, hitting the odd curb a bit too hard and just, there's not a like massive error, but there's like four or five or six just little errors that, that all add up. But I suppose the one thing we should say about Racing Point is they did benefit from often being just outside the top 10 and therefore having free tyre choice at the start but that said although that did hurt sometimes Renault and McLaren McLaren still made the best of it so I don't I think they capitalised on an opportunity presented that it didn't hand anything to them to them on, a, on a, a plate certainly it's become quite a frequent part of a race weekend hasn't it Ed where um, we'll sit down because you, you've got your cunning access to uh, all the onboards through uh, VPNs and whatnot, and and it's become a sort of a a little sort of Saturday, Shh. yeah, <laughs> little Saturday <laughs> afternoon thing. Of um, let let's let's watch the stroll on board to see where he spunked all that time in uh, the crucial moment in qualifying. Yeah, he's got ability. It's it's a uh, it's extremely frustrating. Uh, I suppose we should briefly mention Alfa Romeo started strongly, faded. Difficult to say too much about this. I, th- I think it was difficult. Kimi Raikkonen served them quite well early on. But I still think he probably lacks that last little razor-sharp edge of pace to to kind of elevate them a bit more. For he's, he's a good, consistent performer, but I don't think he was the main problem. <laughs> I don't think he was the problem there. Obviously, Antonio Giovinazzi struggled in, in race conditions particularly, and uh, the team didn't quite manage to get his car upgrades to work well, even though they had a Singapore upgrade that briefly worked and then very, very good into Lagos, but overall just, just faded into into an anonymity in the midfield. But Kimi's the right person for that team, though. The, yeah. You know, someone who's stable, experienced. Um, you know, as you said, Giovinazzi showed speed on many occasions, but made a lot of errors along the way as well. And he, he also throws a lot of what I call stealth errors in races. And you look at his lap times, and you see one, oh, there's two seconds given away. That. And you might just look at the onboard, oh, and there he is, there's a little off-track moment or something, just sneaks them in. So, yeah, you know, when you look at it, they were pretty evenly matched across the year. But how many, collectively, how many opportunities of better performances were left on the table is, I'm sure there's a question there. Yeah, I think it's, it's still a team that's rebuilding. So uh, we'll see how they get the good next year. We should. Are you still a super fan? Because obviously you were oh, a Sauber <laughs> super fan. So you're now an Alpha super it's fan. Not, it's not been the same since Peter Sauber uh, 
uh, got got out of the team. It's just just not the same. But uh, we want to see it do well, though. It's, uh, You're gonna have to remove your tattoo. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Tattoos. Come on, mate. No, um, so yeah, Peter, Peter Stavro was one of those people who pretended not to speak English uh, <laughs> in, in order to not do interviews, but he knew very well what what was going on. Yeah, he was uh, he was sharp and ran the. He did run his team uh, team quite well. We should also talk about Williams. And so, when it comes to Williams, frankly, catastrophic season. Let's call an impartial witness. Williams Heritage driver, Karim Chandler. <laughs> How terribly you're employed. No. But clearly a mess of a season for Williams. The car was late. Paddy Lowe was ousted. Even by their own admission, they didn't manage to close the gap as much as they wanted to over the season. So it was a pretty horrible year all round, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, there's no hiding that, is it? A stopwatch never lies. The results are there in black and white. And they they need to get it sorted because they've had now two difficult seasons there's only so long that you can carry on in formula one with the costs involved and being a public company and you know multiple shareholders things like that there's there's only so long you can carry on with this before big big questions start to be asked have they been too ambitious over the past couple of seasons because we saw in uh 2018 uh, a car that was very different from the the previous one uh, and it looked like they were trying to reinvent the wheel there. The the 2019 car was then a whole other order of different. And are, are they just trying too hard to execute a change and they're throwing everything out for pursuing a new concept? I think you've got a point there. I think when you're struggling as much as Williams have been, the first thing you do is keep things simple and get to a nice baseline. Toro Rosso did that very well, admittedly, with the benefit of they got all the Red Bull bits and bits and pieces. But if you keep things simple play to your current strengths don't try and be too clever the clever bits are the things that build on that simple foundation and i think probably if they can just be sensible not try and there are bits on the car they had to take off before the start of the season because they weren't legal just they just need to understand their circumstances and just work from the the first principles and, and build their way back up yeah i mean unfortunately they went further back this year didn't they you know they last year there was the odd occasion where Sirokin or Stroll could out-qualify Alonso in the McLaren. Yeah, even. Yeah. And, and that, in points some ways... Points on merit in Baku, but there was no no sign of Monza yep. as well. No sign of points on merit this year. No, and, and I think that's that's the worry, is the, you know, you look at 18 and think, okay, they were last, but there was some some realms of, you know, racing other people. And this year, the gap between them and the ninth best team is much bigger, which is the worry. Yeah, it's a, a, a bad season. And obviously, they have the difficulty, Robert Kubitz. We'll probably talk about him in our in our second season review podcast. But uh, yeah, I think everyone wants to see Williams doing well. And I think there has been some real soul searching there. There was a lot of stuff going on in the team that was just broken, basically. Even the fact the car was late was down to various difficulties with the production schedules, etc. They've, they've modified quite heavily their system for monitoring and tracking all of that. I think it was all, it was all still a little bit of that thing where there was a bit too much in people's heads or just sort of stuck on post-it notes, but now integrated system have all these things making, making sure they work, have schedules to hit people accountable for hitting those deadlines, etc. So that's encouraging, but it's not easy for Williams given their commercial situation. So it's going to be a hard battle. Yeah, but you doesn't doesn't excuse that performance. I was going to say the the commercial situation at the end of the day, you know, they've got a good title sponsor, they've got they still got legacy money coming in from the Concord. You know, there's this is an aero issue. They've got the best power unit or one of the best power units, so that's not a problem. So it's clearly an aero issue. And this year's car seemed to be very draggy. It went the opposite, doesn't it, to 2018, where it was such a high drag car, and therefore when we got to Budapest. That was when they were able to sort of, at least with George, qualify in amongst some other yeah, people. Yeah, draggy but no downforce, which was a terrible... Con- <laughs> it's just, just not a compromise at all, is it? Exactly. Just shows, I think, a fundamental hole in the understanding in the aero design process. But good luck to them for, for next year. Well, we've uh, been able to run the rule over some of the big stories of the season. We'll uh, we'll be back with a second podcast looking at our, uh, our top drivers. So thanks very much to Kroon Chandok, Jonathan Noble and Stuart Codling. Uh, do check out allsport.com for all the latest on the world of Formula 1 and the rest of motorsport. The Allsport podcast is out every Monday and Thursday. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back soon with another Allsport podcast.
Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So, tell me about last night. Well, it wasn't what I expected. It had the perfect amount of spice. Sounds hot. It had all the flavor, and I wanted more. The ghost pepper wings from Popeyes are just so delicious. Wait, I thought you were talking about your date. Sometimes, things aren't always as they seem. Like Popeyes ghost pepper wings that have the perfect level of kick and flavor. Try them for only $5 today. Limited time at participating U.S. restaurants. Price may vary. Tax extra. Love that chicken from Popeyes. Social Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.